This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we begin, Olivia, you are broadcasting from an undisclosed location. How was your Thanksgiving? How was your holiday? It's great to see you as always. I am broadcasting from my teenage nephew's bedroom. (laughs) Thanksgiving was great. Still here visiting my family. How was your week? My week was great. It was an awesome holiday. We got to eat a lot of good food, hang out with family and friends. So it was very nice. I didn't have to do any big traveling. We are recording this episode the Saturday after Thanksgiving, which is very strange because we typically don't record in the mornings and we also don't record on the weekend. So this is a different shift. But if you're listening, hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, a very happy holiday. Hope you got to spend lots of time with the people you care about. What kind of food did you eat, Olivia? Anything good? Oh, you know, the usual ham, turkey, green bean casserole. I'm not a big stuffing or dressing person, so I don't eat that. Lots of rolls, lots of chocolate pie. I am right there with you. So I am very strange because I don't really care much about turkey or ham on Thanksgiving. It's all about the side. So I had like the broccoli casserole, more rolls than I could count. My cousin's wife's mother which is a (laughs) strange correlation, but she makes no bake uh, chocolate cookies every year. And Mm. I just eat like a million of those. So yeah, I'm all about the carbs on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Give me the carbs. Give me the bread. Also, I did not eat any pumpkin pie. Because it starts with a P and you don't like pumpkin or pie. No, I'm kidding. Because it sweats. That's why (laughs) I don't eat it. Now, I don't know if you saw, but I did put a poll up in the Facebook group asking if people were into pumpkin pie or if not. And I was surprised because I expected pumpkin pie people to like it. I expected that to win, but I did not expect so many people to feel like me and be like, get that sweaty piece of pie away from me. So 
Love it won out at 58%, but 42% of the people who took the poll were like, get that gross stuff out of here. So I was one of the 42. Same here. And then I saw, can we just have a chocolate pie <laughs> with a chocolate crust? <laughs> All things chocolate. All things chocolate. But anyways, yeah, it's been fun. It's been a fun weekend with uh, my family. It's cold and rainy, so not great weather, but. Yeah, you didn't get to do your turkey trot, huh? No, the turkey trot got canceled because there was lightning, thunder, so they canceled it. My sister and my nephew, however, went out there anyways. I had texted her at 6.30 in the morning saying, it's raining, I'm not going, I don't have time to get sick. Those two showed up anyways, got soaking wet, canceled the race. I mean, that's all I can say. I'm one of the co-hosts of a star podcast. I cannot get sick at the turkey trot. I'm not going. <laughs> well, like I got my marathon coming up and I don't have time to like get sick. But then yesterday I ran kind of in the cold drizzle. So, well, that's dedication for you. So I did not run once at, at all over the holidays. So. <laughs> I'll be technically running twice, but it's okay. Anyways. Well. Well, I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited to hear what you brought for us this week. It is your week to present a case. So let's talk a little bit, jump right into it. What do you got for us this week? So this week, we're going to talk about the eyeball killer, which I feel like would have been a really good title for a Halloween episode, but we're going to talk about the eyeball killer. I had never heard of him before. I'm not sure if you had or not, but. I hadn't. And then I saw your notes that you send over. So for people that are listening Every week, Olivia and I, we type up notes and we send them to each other to kind of either choose if we're going to look into them or not. And as we go through the episodes and stuff, it helps us kind of follow along with what's going on. But I got the email that just said the eyeball killer, and I was immediately intrigued. So a lot of the times I don't look at the notes because if it's a good title, I'm like, I want to know as we go through. So I'm super, super excited. Well, this one had a lot of detail. So if it doesn't seem to make sense, you know, just kind of put me back on track and we'll we'll get it all figured out. There was a lot of details and difficult to kind of put it together, but it was really interesting. Listen, you were talking to the guy who brought you the vigilante serial killer that had Stormy Williams. Stoney LaRue. Stoney LaRue. (laughs) Not Stoney (laughs) LaRue, but it was a lot to follow. So I love detail oriented cases. So I'm definitely excited to hear it. So let's go ahead and jump in. On December 13, 1990, Mary Lou Pratt's body was found in southern Dallas County wearing only a t-shirt with her breast exposed. She had a gunshot wound to the back of the head. Medical examiners found a horrific discovery when they assessed her eyes. To their surprise, both eyes had been removed with such precision. The medical examiner was dumbfounded. The eyelids were practically untouched. The killer must have known how to slip the knife around the eyes and cut the major muscles that hold each eye into the sockets. Whoever did this had to have known what they were doing or had a lot of practice. Nothing became of this case until February 10, 1991, when a second woman, Susan Peterson, was found very similar to Pratt. Nude, wearing only a t-shirt again, pulled up showing her breast. This time, Peterson was shot three times, to the top of the head, the left breast, and the back of the head. Peterson, too, had both eyes removed. Susan Peterson's body was found just south of Dallas, outside city limits, very close to Pratt's body. Given the location of her body, it was now in the jurisdiction of the sheriff's department. Detective Larry Oliver took on Peterson's case. At this time, he had not heard of Pratt's murder until he was with a pathologist during Susan Peterson's autopsy, who revealed that there was a similar case with Dallas police just a few months prior where the eyes were removed. Police were now looking for a possible serial killer. This is crazy. Yeah. Because to me, this is throwing up some flags of like, this is Dallas, right? So we're in Texas. The eyeballs are removed. So first, my brain is like, either this guy is a hunter 
or has some experience doing that because that's a very weird skill to know how to do like without causing damage anywhere else. And then I'm also wondering why he's removing the eyeballs because I know like in serial killer pathology, you know, some people will cover the face of their victim so they're not looking at them. So my brain is like, is he taking the eyeball so that his victims can't look at him after he's done what he's done? So I don't know if any of that's true, but these are just kind of some of the flags that are going through as as we're reading the story. Well, you're just going to have to wait and find out, John. I'm so excited. On March 18th, 1991, the killer struck again. Shirley Williams was found laying naked near a school. She had bruising to her face, a broken nose, and was shot through the top of her head and in the face. Again, her eyes were both removed. So let's talk about who these women are. Mary Lou Pratt was a 33-year-old sex worker in the Oak Cliff neighborhood in Dallas. She worked out of the Star Motel. She was well known to the police department, and Mary Lou was not a regular sex worker who flagged down cars. She was addicted to drugs, so she spent most of her time and extra money on whatever drugs she could get her hands on. She was known to live a double life. At the end of most nights, she would have one of her regulars drive her to her parents' house where she lived in a suburb of South Dallas. Her parents didn't know about her second life. Susan Peterson was a 27-year-old sex worker also working out of the Star Motel. Little is known about her personal life. But after these two murders, two police officers were placed in the area of Jefferson Boulevard near the Star Motel. Their goal was to keep an eye on who was coming and going. Over time, the officers got to know most of the women who worked out of the establishment. Flyers began to be posted around the motel asking women to stay off the streets. Shirley Williams was a 41-year-old sex worker as well, but she was different. Williams worked out of a different location, the Avalon Motel. This was several miles from the Star Motel from where the other two victims were from. Shirley Williams had worked during the day as a maid at the motel but at night worked as a sex worker. Unlike the first two murders, Shirley was found by a school in the center of the Oak Cliff neighborhood. Autopsy results showed that both eyes had been removed, but this time in a hurry. There was a tip of an X-Acto blade found embedded in the skin near her right eye. Police had no witnesses, no fingerprints, no clues as to who this serial killer was until the two officers who were patrolling the Jefferson Boulevard area ran into a well-known 17-year veteran sex worker named Brenda White. The officers warned her that there was a killer on the loose. Brenda quickly told them about a recent encounter she had with a, quote, husky-looking white man with salt-and-pepper hair wearing cowboy boots and blue jeans. He was driving a dark station wagon. Brenda offered to go to the motel where she worked, but the man said no, that he had a spot that they could use. She refused, and when she did, Brenda said something changed in the man's demeanor. She recalled the anger and rage she saw in the man's eyes. She demanded he drop her off immediately, but he did not. He began to tell her how much he hated, quote, whores and that he was going to kill all of you. Brenda quickly sprayed him with mace and jumped out of the car. This story did not settle well with the two officers as they had had a previous conversation with another sex worker named Veronica Rodriguez. Police at the time weren't sure what to make of Rodriguez's story as she was well known to the police and bad on drugs. She had a history of fabricating stories and lying to the police on multiple occasions, but now her story seemed similar to that of Brenda White's. Veronica Rodriguez had told police earlier after the first two murders that she had been attacked and almost killed. The police could see a cut across her forehead, and Rodriguez said that she and Mary Lou Pratt were picked up by a white man and taken to a field in South Dallas. The man raped her and became violent. Veronica said that he hit her in the head with a gun, knocking her out. She told police that she had awakened just as the man had shot Pratt. 
Rodriguez ran away quickly, actually stumbling to a house of a man she knew, which is this is kind of why the police were having a hard time believing her. Yeah, it's crazy, too, that the stories are so similar, you know, where Mm -hmm. I'm sure if this person has a history of fabricating stories or has given information and has just kind of built a reputation that you can't trust, I can see why authorities at first would be like, okay, we don't know how to take this. But then once something so similar kind of gets brought to their attention, it's like, all right, maybe we need to go back and revisit this. So Yeah, and there was a lot of times where she would lie her way out of getting in trouble. And so, you know, they had heard this story first before they ran into Brenda White, and then they just kind of blew Veronica off because, you know, she was used to doing this. Yeah, this is crazy. The house Veronica ran to was a truck driver named Axton Schindler. A few days later, the two officers were driving past the Star Motel when they saw Veronica Rodriguez sitting in a cab of an 18-wheeler with a middle-aged white male. Police investigated who this man was, quickly finding out that his name was Axton Schindler, who lived at 1035 El Dorado Street. They ran Schindler through the system to find out he had no criminal history except for unpaid traffic tickets. When the police began to arrest him, Rodriguez was shouting, Don't arrest him. He's who saved me from the killer. Schindler quickly denied that he had no idea what Veronica was talking about. He reported that he has known her for years and was just giving her a ride to the motel. He said he did not have sex with her, nor did he protect her from a killer. Both were taken to jail at that time. Police took note that the address of Axton Schindler was not in South Dallas, near the field where the two bodies were found, but was only a five-minute drive from the Star Motel. Once arrested, police began to look further into Axton Schindler. His address of 1035 El Dorado Street was owned by a man named Fred Albright. As they continued to search, turns out that Fred Albright also owned property on a street called Cotton Valley, which was located in a neighborhood in South Dallas, close to where the first two murder victims were found. Police quickly found out that Fred Albright was deceased, until one officer mentioned the name Charles Albright. Olivia, you know that I'm a girl dad. Of course I do, John. You have an adorable four-year-old. That's right, and I have to be honest, I haven't always been great at picking out the cutest outfits for her, but I have found the solution. Now, what's that? Great Lakes Kids Apparel. From dresses, pajamas, raglan tees, rompers, and more, Great Lakes Kids Apparel has everything, and my kiddo loves their clothes. But aren't kids' clothes really expensive? And they wear them out and outgrow them so fast. Well, that's the best part. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes. So no matter how hard your child plays, they last. In fact, I have to fight my daughter to take them off long enough just to get them into the wash. That sounds awesome, but do they take forever to ship? No way. Great Lakes Kids Apparel is based out of Ohio and offers fast shipping, usually within two business days. Plus, they offer free shipping on all orders over $50, and you can sign up for their awesome rewards program and earn GLK bucks. Wow, John, that sounds like I need to send out some gifts from Great Lakes Kids Apparel. How do I check them out? All you have to do is head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description to start shopping today. Again, that's GreatLakesKidsApparel.com. And don't forget to use the promo code LOCKS at checkout to save 20% off your first order. So this is getting very interesting to me because, again, much like last week's case, it seems now like there's multiple people or multiple people that they're looking at where it's There's this Schindler guy, but he lives on the property of this Albright guy, but this Albright guy is deceased. So again, it seems like there's going to be some twists and turns and some new details coming out. So 
I'm this one has got me sucked in pretty hard. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, this is where I was talking about all these moving parts, different details, trying to make sure they fit in and not give it away too soon. So yeah, this one, it kept me on my toes as well. It's kind of like one of your cases, definitely. I feel like I always pick very straightforward cases. But So where to now? Officer Cook recalled weeks prior of an anonymous call from a woman stating she was friends with Mary Lou Pratt. And just so as a recap, Mary Lou Pratt was the first sex worker that was murdered. This lady said that she met a man through Pratt that she dated briefly. She described this man as nice, but that he had an odd love for eyes and that he kept exacto blades in his house. And she said his name was Charles Albright. That's a weird thing to have an odd love for. I'm like really into eyes and exacto knives. Yeah. And as I was, there was a lot of stuff about like him painting for people and putting a lot of detail in the work around the eyes of like portraits that he had painted. Um, and then I'll get more into it, but definitely there was a lot of things that made it certain that you knew that he was fascinated with eyes. As we're going through, there are things about this that are like ringing a bell to me. And I believe it's because there's a criminal minds episode that might have a similar plot line to it. And I'm sorry if I spoiled anything that you're going to talk about later, (laughs) but I'm like, man, this sounds really familiar. There is, there is a, a criminal minds episode, but they don't use his name. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, even when we did Willie Picton, the pig farmer, there was a Criminal Minds episode that was similar to that, but it's like completely different than the yeah. actual events. But I'm like, man, being really fascinated with eyes. I don't know. It, it's just like there was things going on, but I didn't recognize this guy's name. So who is Charles Albright? Well, he was born in Amarillo, Texas on August 10th, 1933. He was adopted from an orphanage by Fred and Dell Albright. Dell was a school teacher who was very overprotective of Charles. She pushed him with his education, and he was able to skip two grades. When Charles was a young teenager, he got his first gun. He started out shooting small animals and enjoyed stuffing them as he wanted to become a taxidermist. His mother encouraged this hobby and helped him along the way. His mother was unable to afford the glass eyes used in taxidermy, so they used buttons or sewed the eyes shut. By the age of 13, he was arrested for aggravated assault. Age 15, he graduated from high school and enrolled in North Texas University, where he planned on studying pre-med to become a surgeon. Age 16, he was arrested by police for stolen petty cash, two handguns, and a rifle in his possession. At that time, he spent a year in jail. After his release, he started over and attended Arkansas State Teachers College and again majored in pre-med. He was found with stolen items and expelled from school, but no charges were held against him. During his time at Arkansas Teachers College, he falsified both a bachelor's and master's degree. Prior to getting expelled, Charles Albright played a prank on his friend in college. His friend, whose name was never revealed, had broken up with his girlfriend. He tore up several photos of him and his girlfriend and threw them away in the trash can in his dorm room. Weeks later, the friend began to date another girl and had asked her for a picture to have of her in his dorm room. One night, he was laying in bed and noticed that the picture of his new girlfriend was changed. He looked closely and found that her eyes had been cut out and replaced with his old girlfriend's eyes from the prior photos. Everywhere he looked, there were eyes of his prior girlfriend. In the bathroom, on his bed, on the ceiling. Charles Albright had stolen the torn pictures and placed these eyes all around where his friend would notice. Albright married his college girlfriend, Betty Nestor, in 1954 when he was just 20 years old. The two had a child together, and he continued with petty crimes such as forgery during their relationship. He had several stints of probation, but no jail time. In 1975, the couple separated but did not legally divorce until 1987. Around 1979, he was becoming quite the neighborly man. 
He attended St. Bernard Catholic Church, where he sang in the choir. He befriended many parishioners, including one family who had a little girl. Charles and the family became fast friends. He brought them food, dressed up as Santa Claus, and always gave the little girl and her siblings small gifts. He was accused of molesting the 14-year-old girl. Her family wanted to keep the matter secret so as not to ruin their daughter's reputation or humiliate Charles Albright. Albright decided not to fight with the family and pled guilty and confessed to, quote, knowingly and intentionally engaging in sexual intercourse with the young girl. She was 14. He was 51. He only received probation and no jail time. Now, I don't know if it's just that time period or what, but I just watched that Friend of the Family series on Peacock, and then I had watched a documentary on Netflix that abducted in plain sight, and they were so worried about painting the offender in a negative light, where as a dad, I'm like, I want to humiliate Charles Albright. I want everybody to know what he did so that he can't do it to anybody else. So it's very interesting to me that it's, I get not wanting to have their daughter portrayed in a negative light, but again, I mean, she's a victim, not her fault at all. But again, I think the time really Mm -hmm. speaks to why, but trying to shield the offender or protect their reputation is just beyond me. I don't get that. Yeah, I thought that was odd. But again, in the 70s, I could see where that was probably a thing, especially since they were so involved in church and they would be worried about what the church members thought. And, you know, it's just weird because, again, I would have done the same thing. I would have been like, I'm blasting this man. He will be shunned from our community and he will not walk amongst our streets. All I'm saying is if you want to talk about me on a podcast like this, do something to my kid. You know what I mean? Like, that's like the one thing where I'm like, I could see driving me to do something terrible, you know, as if you hurt my child. You know? Oh, absolutely. So it just kind of blows my mind a little bit, but sign of the times, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Well, in 1985, he started to date and moved in with a woman named Dixie Austin. Dixie was swooned by Albright. She said he was gentle, educated, and a kind man. She began to support Charles by paying his way as he held multiple odd jobs. Charles had already started his obsession with the red light district in Dallas. He was a frequent flyer with the sex workers. Charles took an early morning paper route that would help him to visit the sex workers without his wife knowing. So let's jump back into the case of these three murdered women. Ballistic results proved that the same gun was used in the murders of Mary Lou Pratt and Shirley Williams. Police continued to question sex workers and multiple women gave them the name Charles Albright. A search warrant was issued and police found exacto knives, books about serial killers, and clothing soaking in bleach when they entered his home. Other evidence that later came to light was that Mary Pratt was a friend of Albright's prior to her becoming a sex worker. Pratt had previously rented a house that was owned by Albright's parents in South Dallas. Albright even dated one of Pratt's friends. Once Pratt became a sex worker, Albright became one of her regular customers. Charles would pay more than the going rate. He became friends with the other sex workers but never engaged in sexual activity with them. Other reports found that Susan Peterson had listed Charles Albright as her co-signer on a bail bond application and listed him as her best friend. So what's really interesting to me as we go through this case is that Albright is obviously smart, right? Like he's smart enough to get in these colleges, you know, wants to go for pre-med, but he's got this streak in him. There's just something dark underneath the surface. And then, you know, even after he gets divorced, he meets a new woman and They get married, but then he's like secretly going to visit these sex workers by taking like a paper route job, you know? So it's like, you're very smart, but you've got this dark streak. You're deceptive. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's really, really interesting. 
Yeah, he like seemed like he had the whole community almost fooled in a sense. And then, like you said, like he's smart enough to be like, oh, I'm going to take an early morning job so that I can go live my second life without Dixie finding out about it. Which I'm like, okay, you're a paper boy, technically, but you're going and hanging out with sex workers at these motels in town. Yeah, and the fact that he was able to kind of take advantage of this relationship that he had had with Pratt and kind of embed himself into this world and get himself access to these things, it's just very conniving. You know, I think that goes back to like falsifying a master's degree or a bachelor's degree. It's just you're trying to get one over. You know what I mean? I think it goes back to what we talked about before where it's like I'm smarter than everybody else in the room. Oh, yeah, and back to him like falsifying. I didn't go into great detail about this, but the woman he married – Betty, she actually worked in the president's office at the time in the college. And so he manipulated her to get a key to like all of campus, which is how he was able to go in, falsify documents, act like he had this bachelor's and master's degree before he got expelled. So very much a master manipulator. Definitely. Charles Albright was arrested on March 23rd, 1991. Multiple sex workers, including Veronica Rodriguez, were shown several mugshots. All of them identified Charles Albright as the man who attacked them. He was charged with three counts of murder for the slayings of Mary Lou Pratt, Susan Peterson, and Shirley Williams. His trial began on December 13, 1991. The prosecution had a case that seemed to be built on mostly circumstantial evidence. The only solid evidence was the ballistics to a .44 handgun and hairs that were found at the crime scene of Shirley Williams. Those hairs were a match to Albright. On December 18, 1991, the jury found Charles Albright guilty for the murders of Shirley Williams, Mary Lou Pratt, and Susan Peterson. He was sentenced to life in prison. His defense attorneys attempted to appeal, but the request was denied. He was held at the Texas Department of Corrections in Amarillo. He died in prison in 2020 at the age of 87. So after he was arrested, there was a lot of sex workers around 1995 that were murdered, but their eyeballs weren't removed. So people were like, well, maybe there's the eyeball killer still out there. He changed his tactics so that we didn't know who he was since someone had already gone, you know, down for murdering those three women. So some people think that he was wrongly tried. I think that, in my opinion, there's enough evidence based off his whole lifespan of this obsession with eyeballs. Pretty certain that uh, Charles Albright was the eyeball killer, in my opinion. Anyways, what do you think? Yeah, I'm definitely in line with you there. Like the fact that he has seemed to have this obsession, he's into taxidermy so that, you know, he knows how to hunt and kill. He knows how to, you know, stuff these animals and how to make them look realistic. And then to find the hairs on that victim's body. You know what I mean? Like that is the one thing for me that kind of ties it all together. Because if there were no hairs that were found, okay, maybe this is just purely coincidental and we're looking at this person because we're you know we're trying to find somebody and maybe there could be you know some speculation there but for me finding those hairs and then looking at this person's life it just kind of all seems to make a lot of sense yeah and i think the only way people could make up something about the hairs was like well maybe he slept with her and her hairs were on her body and it was just a coincidence but like i said i'm pretty certain that he was the eyeball killer and also removing somebody's eyeballs i mean that is a very specific thing for a killer to do. And it seems like it would almost be compulsive, right? That's not something that's just like, Oh, I just, you know, figured I'd try to remove their eyeballs, but there's like a driven reason that you're doing that. So for someone to change their MO, if it wasn't him and then not do something as intense, 
Like typically serial killers don't de-escalate, they escalate. You know what I mean? So it just seems like that would be his signature. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally agree. So what'd you think of this case, John? This case was crazy. I mean, just thinking about putting myself in the shoes of these detectives, people who are finding these bodies and there's no eyeballs. I mean, I'm sure as a detective, you catch different crazy cases and murders and dead bodies all the time. But like to stumble into something like that seems like it would be probably one of the craziest points of your career. I'm sure every detective has that one case that like kind of haunts them. You know what I mean? Or like, oh man, this case is really bad. And I can imagine this would be one of those. So there's a lot of twists and turns. It was really dark. I mean, this is the kind of case that I really like hearing about. All right. So tell me, where do you think this falls on your deadbolt test? So for me on the deadbolt test, and I know we talk about this all the time, but kind of filtering it through our own lenses. I'm not a sex worker, obviously, just not built for it. But... (laughs) (laughs) I can understand how this would put an entire community on edge, right? Because you start with sex workers, but you know, if this person goes uncaught, what would they move to next? So I don't fit into the lifestyle. So for me on the deadbolt test, I would put this about a five, but interesting wise, I'm putting it at a 10 as far as being into the case and wanting to know more as we were going on. What about you? Where does this fall for you? I think I'm pretty similar, and I think this might actually be my first sex worker's case. Maybe my second. I find that you're the one that usually brings the sex worker cases, um, but. What are you implying? (laughs) It turns out that a lot of sex workers get killed. It's really kind of sad. That's because as a country, we do not make it safe for them to work like other countries do. Right. And so instead of normalizing this field and. Regulating it. Right. Regulate it, operating it safely. We look at it through this like Christian puritanical lens and it's, you know, bad for society and everything like that. And unfortunately it leaves these people to be vulnerable, which is really sad. But also your murder in Minnesota case, that was a sex worker as well. So this is number Number two. two. I'm not the only one bringing sex workers to the podcast. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, I would say it's about a five um, and also a 10 on like the detail and like the curiosity of the case, but definitely like nothing that I'm going to go check my locks over. Now, if he was just murdering random people and taking their eyeballs, that's a whole nother ball game. But yeah, I'm going to leave this one at about a five. Oh yeah. If this guy was just breaking into houses like randomly and taking people's eyeballs, I'd be like, ah, I'm locking every door, every window. Keeping but, my eyeballs shut. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that is where we fall on the deadbolt test this week. Olivia and I are both giving Charles Albright the eyeball killer fives on the deadbolt test. But of course, we want to know, where does this land on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on the socials. We're on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you are not in our Facebook group, Join the Facebook group. This community is so amazing. You know, I don't want to put anything out there that would put anyone on blast or anything like that, but just seeing the way that members of the community kind of lifted another member up this week was absolutely amazing. It is just a group full of great people that are are really there for the shared love of true crime, but are also just being good to one another. And that's a crazy thing to see on the internet. So if you're not in our Facebook group, come hang out with us. We're in there interacting every single day. Olivia, I think we should turn our eyeballs to something else. Do you got a review for us to read? I do. I've got my eyes set on a good one. Let's hear it. (laughs) (laughs) So this one comes from Ashley Gave 1106. This says, one of my faves. Love this podcast and have been totally hooked since day one. 
I love listening to both hosts. We all know if they don't have a good voice, the podcast isn't good. But both of them do an awesome job and have the perfect storytelling voices. This is one thing about Monday I can actually look forward to. So thank you, Ashley, GAV1106, for leaving us a five-star review. Yes, Ashley, thank you for leaving the review and so happy that we can make your Monday a little bit more bearable. Olivia, I know if you're like me, Mondays are just rough. So extra coffee, anything that makes you smile just helps you get through the day. So really appreciate you taking the time to leave that review. Hit us up. We would love to send you some stuff. Again, you can find us on Instagram, check the locks pod, Twitter, check the locks. Hit us up in the Facebook group if you're hanging out in there. If you're not a social person, that's no problem. Head over to checkthelockspod.com. Click that email button. Let us know what you, we'd be happy to send you some stuff. We got stickers, pins, buttons, all sorts of stuff. Would love to get it to you. Olivia, if someone would like to have their review read on the podcast, what's the best way to do that? Well, they need to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app. Go to our show page of Check the Locks, a true crime podcast. Scroll all the way down to the bottom where you see all five stars. Click all five stars and leave us a review. And hopefully yours will be the one read on our next episode. Yeah, and not only do we just love reading these reviews because we absolutely adore the feedback that we get from our listeners and letting us know what you think, but this also helps us to grow our community, right? These reviews are going to help us get us mentioned in other shows' recommendations. It helps more people find us and just, again, kind of helps us grow the way that we need to. So if you've taken the time to leave us a review, thank you so much. If you haven't, head over to Apple Podcasts. You can click the link in the show description. It'll take you right there. Leave us that review. We would love to hear exactly what you're thinking about the show. Also, don't forget to leave us a voicemail. We would love to hear your voices. Head over to checkthelockspod.com. There's a little microphone button in the bottom right corner. Click that button. Leave us a voicemail. We want to hear from you. And every week that we don't have a voicemail, Olivia gets sad. I'm sad. It's been too many weeks. I know. We want to hear from you. So make sure you are leaving us that voicemail. Also, we have a Patreon. So if you are interested in financially supporting the show, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. Go ahead and sign up there. We got stickers. We got exclusive mugs, t-shirts, stuff for being a Patreon. You get episodes without any ads, all sorts of cool stuff. If you cannot financially sponsor the show, we definitely understand things are tight all over. And I promise you just listening to the show means just as much, if not more. So if you are taking the time to listen to this in your headphones or in your car on the way to work, thank you. It means the world to us. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. That helps us out in ways that we could never even put into words. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is all that we have got for this week's episode. Make sure that you are tuning in on Wednesdays for true crime for the short on time. Join us again next Monday for another truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. We'll see you next week.